We are so excited today that a dear old friend of ours, Alexandra Skaggs, is here uh, from the FD Alphaville to talk to us. We have known Alex for a long time. It's back been in years. The, it has been years, and she used to follow the sovereign debt markets and write about it. And I, just yesterday, in the context of preparing materials for class about the long forgotten drama in Puerto Rico that is still going on, and I, I, I hope we will pay attention to it before it crashes and burns again. Mm -hmm. I was reading some of Alex's really wonderful pieces from Alphaville from 2018 and before, but we're going to try to talk about really, really current stuff today because there's so much that is going on, but just generally, we're so excited that Alex is back at Alphaville. I mean, we love Alphaville, but we are particularly excited that she's back to writing about things that we can easily read. So welcome to our podcast. We have been looking forward to having you on it for a long time. And so we are celebrating. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a fan of the podcast. I really liked the uh, the tribal bonds stuff. That was that was really great. It's just like fascinating um, to think about bonds that are sort of in that in between zone. Oh, okay. You they, well, uh, you know, oh, and they're yeah, not that different like from Puerto Rico. Some of those yeah. connections. So we might be the only three people in the world who are interested in this. <laughs> but but, but we, you've given us all the encouragement we need. But so Alex, do, I hope you won't mind. We're gonna start a little bit. Uh, basic, I mean, not basic for us, but it'll be basic for you, because it, it strikes us that there just are so many things going on simultaneously in the global markets. And we don't, you know, we're not economists, we, we don't really have a really good grasp of what the hell is going on. And so I'm hoping we can start with the interest rate regimes, both right. in the U.S. and for the emerging markets, they, they strike us as simultaneously going up and consistently going up, both mm -hmm. by reason of intentions of the Fed and the ECB, but also just global credit conditions. So can you tell us what's happening and where is it going yeah, so it's a really, really interesting time in emerging market debt right now. Um, so I'll say like my background is I covered the U.S. stock market, then I covered the U.S. rates market, then I sort of covered a lot of everything at Alphaville. Um, and so, you know, I, I tend to know more about it coming from the U.S. interest rate side of things. But, you know, I guess luckily for our discussion today, U.S. interest rates have an enormous impact on emerging market debt and emerging market economies um, because a lot of growing developing countries end up actually borrowing in dollars. And then when interest rates in the U.S. go up, that makes things more expensive for them. That's sort of like one of the basic things. Um, another basic thing is that when investors can earn a higher return in the U.S., uh, you know, when interest rates go up, um, they can 
they can basically, I mean, treasuries are extremely safe and now they're yielding, oh gosh, like 3% about even at some point. So like investors are actually preferring to own treasuries right now instead of say, um, you know, a dollar bond issued by, uh, I'll say Argentina, though I, that's been its own sort of uh, dramatic thing. But but writ large, um, investors are pulling money out of emerging markets and putting them back into the U.S. And that also, like, that makes the strain even larger. Alex, can I just ask just a clarification? Okay. And I'm cutting in because I know Mark would have wanted to ask a question, but I'm grabbing your more of your time. So he I knows just I don't want to ask his question. <laughs> <laughs> you never ask my question. You might sort of take the conversation in a direction that I don't want it to go, and then I can't get back to it. So I'm preempting okay. you. But uh, um, so. I did a class recently on the Latin American debt crisis, and yeah. I was, you know, you know, because I, I'm insecure and I wanted more students and I didn't want students to drop my class. I was trying to tell them about that this is a particularly important time for the emerging market developing country uh, debt. Yeah. world because so many countries seem to be in crisis. And then I went into describing the Latin American debt crisis and what happened when the U.S. Uh, under Volcker raises the interest rates and all there are all these countries that have borrowed with it flexible interest rate syndicated loans. So mm -hmm. the, the interest rates in the U.S. go up and their interest rates go up and they are in dollars and dollar value goes up and like the whole thing just crashes mm -hmm. down. But subsequently, and, uh, you know, pesky student, of course, pointed this out, uh, flexible rate bonds, I think, have almost completely disappeared, perhaps mm -hmm. because of the lessons of the Latin American debt crisis. And they all issue fixed rate bonds, at least all the sovereigns. I mean, I, this is not all, but it's like 99.9% .9 of the data that we see. So is are the U.S. rates going up as much of a problem with the, with the caveat? I mean, you already explained one problem, which is yeah. that money is coming back into the U.S. Yes. Uh, and so that, that might be enough to cause a sort of global catastrophe. But, but the rates going up, um, is is that really a problem? Is it yeah. because of refinancing? Yeah, it only really matters when it's time to refinance. So it doesn't mean that like a country, oh gosh, it's so funny because they're so, the, the world is very big and a lot of borrowers are out there. But um, I was looking at, I mean, there are some countries that like don't have too many near-term maturities. So it's not like tomorrow they're going to be paying like, you know, 10% or something. Um, however, uh, they're, the money actually leaving, I think those countries is more important. And this is all happening at the same time as a gigantic squeeze in fuel and food prices. So, and as you guys know, and, and, you know, you guys are actually, I think the experts on a lot of the history of uh, debt restructurings, but, um, as you guys know, a lot of global trade is denominated in dollars, you know, a lot of times when the dollar is so strong and when sort of financing conditions are this tight, um, 
emerging market countries end up sort of having to choose, okay, do we pay our creditors or do we import food? Like it's not, I mean, that that's an oversimplification of course, but the way that that sort of raises the pressure, you know, it sort of starts slow, but then you see these uh, countries like, you know, Sri Lanka and Zambia and, and other places sort of feeling the pressure in multiple ways. So that that's actually a, a interesting tie into what I had wanted to ask you about, Alex, which is the sort of twin burden here, both that dollars are getting more expensive, but also that because in parts of the the Russian invasion in Ukraine and related factors, I mean, maybe energy exporters are somewhat able to buffer the uh, some of these forces but energy and food importers are kind of doubly screwed aren't they do you have a sense of just how severe the problem is going to be over the next 6 months or a year for for a lot of our emerging markets uh that is a great point yeah i, I think um you know it's it is interesting cuz you know like you mentioned exporters are actually doing quite well like i've seen some research from um economists and stuff like that saying like okay if you're an exporter like good for you you know oil is oil is expensive you're going to be fine in terms of um in terms of reserves but i do think that like having these sorts of bits of uh stress and i'm actually right now looking up I was just chatting with someone yesterday about the areas where where countries could be at risk economically. Let's see. Okay. Yeah. So I, I think that, you know, energy exporters are actually going to do perfectly fine. I mean, they they do also face some pressure from just higher interest rates, like, you know, funds leaving um, emerging markets debt. And by funds, I mean, like, you know, actual investors um, coming back to the U.S. more. Um, but at the same time, you do have, you know, importers like, uh, let's see, I was talking to a fund manager and he mentioned um, Pakistan, Egypt, Turkey, Zambia, Tunisia. Um, you know, if you're actually, if you're borrowing in dollars or euros and you export or not export, if you import a lot of food and energy, then uh, things are going to get really tight. And and that explains uh, certainly accounts for the predicament of places like Sri Lanka. And mm-hmm. I I um so I I think me too. You and I had been talking a lot about the kind of strength of the dollar and the and the sort of difficulties that that was posing. I kind of want to talk a bit about China, but before we do that, do you want to follow up? Partly because I just came back from India and I was reading the financial papers there, believe it or not, people actually read the physical papers there. Mm. Or it may just be my mom who's in her late 80s and just cannot bear to read anything online. But there's a lot of talk in the press about, you know, a foreign currency shortfall and how to raise more foreign currency. And I I think India is very nervous because they have been, you know, uh, playing footsie with the the Russians and they're scared any day sanctions might come and then they'll need foreign currency. 
and the rise in the dollar because so many of their contracts are written in dollars mm-hmm. is scary and they're they're worried that the the dollar is going to continue to rise and i know this mu- this must be related to our fighting inflation yeah but i'm just wondering like what's 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 in the future for us if the U.S. has to continue to fight inflation, what does that mean for the U.S. dollar? Oh, yeah, that that definitely means the dollar continues to rise, um, which is interesting because... Alex, can I just oh, ask sure. you one thing on this? So, like, when... I mean, you you know you know these mm-hmm. policymakers. You talk to them. You you probably get to do you get to go to Jackson Hole and party. Oh, that would have been with... amazing. Unfortunately, not. Uh, <laughs> but but great. you could go, right? You you're Maybe. like you actually could go. And whereas okay. Mark and I were just you know look at pictures on the internet of what what life must be like for the people who go to Jackson Hole. But I know I... the people who go. I'll say that. <laughs> I can send a message to that journalist who goes. (laughs) When when the U.S. policymakers are thinking about, you know, raising interest rates, do they do they have any place in their heart for the rest of the world that they dragged through crisis um, in the 80s? Do they think, look, we could like fuck up everything? Is this something we think about? You know, I do know that it's something that's thought about, um, but (laughs) I'm trying to think about how to put this tactfully about American policymakers because... uh, Oh, I don't think we need tact. We're just a little podcast, you know, (laughs) just a few students. Nobody's going to (laughs) listen. Well, I I listen to you guys. So, but anyway, uh, I do, you know, it's amazing to see how whenever you know, foreign policy or or whenever, whenever U.S. policy has consequences outside the U.S., as long as like everything's pretty much okay here, policymakers are like, okay, we're going to really think a lot about that. But in times where there's say inflation or a lot of political instability, like uh, right now, um, policymakers are like, oh yeah, you know, uh, who it's, it's a little grim and it's, um, it's really difficult sometimes to, to defend, honestly, <laughs> um, because I do, you know, people are feeling the sting from inflation, but that's a big topic of, that's a big topic of debate right now, you know? Um, and, and it definitely does have pretty severe consequences for the rest of the world. It's this sort of um, continual drumbeat of interest rate increases and this increasingly hawkish policy, and you'll you'll notice it's sort of a it's sort of a I guess I'll call it a meme in markets where, you know, you can look back let's say like five or six years and all of a sudden Janet Yellen Jerome Powell very very interested in the U.S.'s role and the global effects of. U.S. policy and vice versa, the effects of the U.S. or of global policy on the U.S. Uh, but then, you know, as soon as things get a little shaky, you know, in terms of inflation or in terms of um, growth, all of a sudden it's like, okay, no, we're just out for ourselves here. <laughs> so, so uh, can I, I? I mean, we we should uh, we had intended to move the conversation 
to China, Zambia, Sri Lanka yeah. more specifically, but I, I don't want to let things go without two, without at least touching upon two other big topics as I see mm -hmm. it. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, maybe um, this will help us because Mark and I have to give a talk next week I think it's it's a, to uh, a UK-based organization of very intimidating people, and we're mm -hmm. supposed to be talking about the impact of uh, Ukrainian debt and Russian debt mm -hmm. on the global economy. And we, you know, I'm like, I don't know anything. So I was telling Mark earlier today. We'll just ask Alex, and then we'll parrot whatever <laughs> she says. <laughs> but but I am I'm wondering uh, how does the continuing war in Ukraine and Russia and the increasing fuel costs, you know, we had this temporary window where we all thought, oh, okay, somehow fuel costs are going down and we've controlled fuel costs. But my sense is, no, like the fuel costs around the world are now going up and they're going up at a faster rate than we thought. And this conflict is continuing to drag on. It, how is, this is, this has got to be part of the global equation that, this stuff, if it keeps going on, is going to impact all of the things we've talked about so far. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, it's it's interesting because it sounds, in theory, like the war between Russia and Ukraine is just like a convenient excuse for inflation, right? A lot of people like to say that. But, you know, especially in Europe, you can see very clearly uh, Nord Stream is shut down right now. Uh, Russia was the biggest provider of natural gas to Germany. You know, it's September, it's going to get colder. Like there are very, very real effects here. And all of that leads to significant inflation in Europe. And of course, because global markets are, um, you know, markets are global, it it does actually translate to the U.S. Um, and it's been really interesting to see how the U.S. on one hand will be like, okay, actually we've got, um, it's very important for us to be able to say, export liquefied natural gas to Europe. Then on the other hand, they end up kind of dragging their feet on some, um, you know, regulatory things that would actually allow the U.S. to export more liquefied natural gas. Like I, I wrote about this somewhat recently and that affects inflation. Um, a plant at, uh, that affects us inflation A the plant in Louisiana run by Freeport had, uh, an explosion of some kind, like something went wrong and, and there was an issue there. And all of a sudden natural gas prices in the U S crash pretty significantly because all of a sudden that plant won't be exporting. So that's more domestic supply of natural gas. And, and I might be getting a little bit off topic here, but it's funny because in the financialized way and like the, okay, is, does the U S have like systemic exposure? Does the world have systemic exposure to Russian or Ukrainian debt? Like, eh, not really, <laughs> you know, like I was trying to find uh, my last job, a a sort of financial markets angle, um, but it really seems to be more of a real resource angle and a political angle in the fact that the U.S. had actually frozen um, Russian 
reserves or it, it was, uh, I, I'm foggy on the details cause it was three months ago or however long ago, which is like 10 years in journalist time. But, um, the U S policy towards Russian central bank reserves, um, I think have other global central banks looking for other places to keep reserves, which is also interesting. Like if you, and I'm sure you guys talked about this a lot. Um, and actually I remember you did, cause I heard you talk about it, but the, the interesting point to me is that, you know, everyone wants to know like, okay, what's, how is this going to mess up the bond market for like, you know, Russia and Ukraine specifically going to war, but they're not especially like us investors aren't especially exposed to Ukraine or Russia. It's really the real resources and the politics. I and think that, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, no, go ahead. Sorry. I'm, I'm sort uh, of talking on. No, no, no. I, I, um, I wanted to steer us in a, in a slightly different sure. direction as we head into break. Although I was struck by your description of time passing for journalists, because I, <laughs> I think it might be the exact opposite of academics where even things that happened hundreds of years ago might as well have happened three months ago. We we remain interested, even even if they're uh, they've passed into obscurity. Um, we so everything we've been talking about so far kind of portends bad times ahead. And I know that we wanted to talk to you about Zambia and Sri Lanka mm-hmm. and other places where. Um, sort of restructuring pressures are most acute right now. And we also, I think, wanted to talk a bit about debt concerns in China, like with the property sector. But I, I want to ask a, a different question about China, if I can, as a as a way of taking us uh, in that direction, which is assuming there's a, a, a wave of financial crisis in emerging markets and poor countries. One of the biggest changes is that China is going to be a significant creditor in all of those restructurings. Mm -hmm. And and we hear all kinds of um, sort of doomsday type prognostication about the effect that's going to have, you know, the, uh, the presence of China is going to drag negotiations over debt restructuring to a stop. And, you know, it's going to create all these problems with private creditors. And then the flip side of that, some people are, you know, oh, no, we have the common framework and these things for coordinating creditors. I guess I I just want to ask you whether you have a sense of how big a deal it is now that China has become such a major a lender and such a major player on the creditor side for a lot of emerging markets and poorer countries. That's a that's a really interesting question. Um, you know, I I think the impression that I get is that it does sort of change the landscape significantly. Um, because if you're, let's say, a like distressed um, a sovereign debt investor, um, you know, all of a sudden you have a a giant co-creditor who you're not entirely sure, you know, from what I've heard from from managers is that they're most concerned about the uh, transparency issues because they just don't know necessarily a lot of the terms of the debt, a lot of the the Do you take them seriously when they say that? You know, it's tough because 
you know, especially from the U S it is just very far away. (laughs) And it sounds very dumb to say that, but, um, you know, I, I do think it's important to take, um, to take whatever, you know, distressed sovereign debt investors say with a grain of salt. Um, but at the same time, like it is different. I I don't think, you know, this sort of like doomsday, like, oh, this is going to be so terrible for everyone. And actually these countries are ruining their own economies by accepting China as a creditor. I, I don't think that is the case. Um, but their concerns about transparency, I've heard echoed elsewhere, you know, through the IMF, but then again, the IMF, um, you know, as we've, as we've discussed, or as, as we've seen, you know, China is not a Paris club member. So, um, it could be, you know, shifting back towards sort of a bipolar political power type of world situation. Um, but like, it is, it is interesting that like for a while, at least, you know, post cold war, everyone was kind of on the same team. And now there's like an outside player who's not necessarily on that team. And and this is, you know, talking like major creditors and global superpowers. Um, so it's a, it's a really interesting question. Well, well, let's take a short break and then maybe when we come back, we can, uh, talk a bit about some of the more specific Uh, situations going on that we were interested in. So let's take a short break. Okay, thanks. So I can't help but put in my two cents about all of this transparency stuff. I was reading something again today about creditors and official sector folks complaining okay admittedly it might have been in alphaville so i'm so sorry alex (laughs) but it was like something about oh we need to force china to be more transparent blah 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 that's what like it's such complete bullshit these the you know these investors when they're lending money could ask for the terms of these obscure chinese documents Mm -hmm. and they would get them like this is and on on top of that, they don't make any of their documents available. In fact, they don't seem to have their own documents themselves because they email Mark and they email me saying, oh, yeah, we borrowed a bunch of money. Uh, we lent a bunch of money. Uh, do, do you per- by chance have the trust document? Can you please send it to us? I'm like, can, can you please like just get your flunkies to get the document? So the idea that they are busy, you know, like rolling over thinking, oh, I can't get the Chinese syndicated loans and the China might have priority. It's such utter, just utter bullshit. So I, I'm so sorry. Like Thank I read you this for telling stuff. me that. Yeah. Me, me too fails to appreciate that we are their flunkies. <laughs> oh, I know. I hate being their flunkies and they never give us their documents when we need them. So, you know, people, next time you're calling us for our documents, we're going to ask for you to be more transparent. This, this is just, okay. All right. Enough. Ranting, like is, <laughs> ranting is enough. But I, I've been, I've been wondering about the news that we've been reading in the pages of Alphaville among others, but I, there seems to be a lot of concern about the Chinese property market. And 
Yes. These really big companies that have borrowed a lot, that including uh, FX borrowing, and now are going to need bailouts uh, from the Chinese government, large bailouts. And despite our sense that, you know, China has so much money, if they have to do large domestic bailouts, that's got to change what their view is vis-a-vis, you know, all of the financing they've done around the world uh, in part of the Belt and Road uh, Initiative that's also seeming to crash and burn right now. So I, I guess the question really is, what the hell is going on domestically in China? And is that is that something we should be worried about? Or shall we just say, oh, no, that's just, uh, you know, local. We don't need to worry about it just like we don't worry about many other parts of the world. Uh, so I don't I don't know that a slowdown in the uh, Chinese property market would be financially systemic again. But uh, one of the one of the interesting um, one of the interesting ways that could echo throughout global markets is inflation, um, because you could argue that, you know, past the year, in the years after the global financial crisis, global growth would have been much slower, um, if not for China developing um, so, so aggressively and quickly. Um, And so right now, what is happening is there has been some stress on local banks, there has been some stress on um, definitely lots of stress on property markets. um, And Right now, it appears that some of the most stressed property developers are selling, are are getting bailed out, quote unquote, by basically selling properties to state-linked or state-backed developers, Um, which is very interesting because, again, you know that that those are, like you said, sort of the bailouts that um, could end up constraining, I guess, um, you know, China's menu of options for for global debt restructurings. But it really, it's very interesting because I do think one of the trends that's happened there recently is that investors, not investors, um, you know, companies and developers in China have actually been retreating a little bit from global markets and looking for domestic funding instead. And that sort of makes it that makes it a little bit less scary for global investors and more of like, a, okay, can we actually get involved in this um, somehow? You know, it, which is which is also very interesting. Um, Alex, are, are the global investors like in Evergrande, mm-hmm. uh, are they going to get bailed out by the Chinese oh. state or are they gonna get haircut? Brutally. Oh, they're definitely going to get a haircut. So uh, that, you know, I mean, they actually um, ended up proposing their own restructuring plan because the, um, as the company itself, they claim missed a deadline. Um, And uh, it's, I don't know, it's so interesting covering this stuff because like in the U.S. when there's a restructuring or even, you know, in Europe, in the U.S., you know, there's like a court and you can go and you can find a document and you're like, okay, this is a trustee appointed. And there's like some sort of um, way to gut check things. Whereas like when it comes to 
Evergrande, for example, like basically the question is like, are people getting paid? And bondholders, you know, global bondholders are not getting paid right now. Um, and beyond that, you know, the question is like, what would a restructuring plan look like for this debt? But again, like you, like you mentioned, um, you know, Chinese developers have a lot of, a lot of other things on their minds right now. Like, um, you know, for example, people living in China and not paying mortgage payments on properties that haven't been finished yet. Um, you know, that's affecting liquidity. Um, the property developers also have a lot of off balance sheet debt, which I think is starting to come out now. Like a lot of these sort of, um, wealth management vehicles that were sort of an issue, gosh, like five years ago, like it turns out a lot of those sort of wealth management vehicles ended up lending or yeah, lending to the property developers, but in ways that were like not on the property developers balance sheet. So this is all sort of a, a Chinese domestic issue. But again, like you said, they, with the, the Belt and Road Initiative, um, it affects more than just them. The, the question is just like, I guess, how far it spreads. So can we move? I, I know we, we sure. don't have a ton of a ton of time. Uh, can we move on to some of the our recent announcements uh, by the IMF of sort of call them really tentative uh, uh, deals for Zambia and Sri Lanka? And I'm wondering if we can just get your sort of reaction to those. Maybe maybe um, I'm interested, especially in, in Zambia, where it seems we have a little bit more information. I mean, the, and in particular, I guess, I keep coming back to the question of, of China's role as a creditor. There's a lot in the sort of information that suggests all these concessions were made to China. So, you know, the, the fund is certainly envisioning uh, that that might be reprofiled rather than restructured. And, you know, there's room for bilateral negotiation. So, you know, in principle, China can cut its own deal. And a lot of the press I've read suggests that the private investors are particularly uh, up in arms about uh, about a lot of this and feel particularly excluded from the process of setting the kind of financing envelope. Do you have a sense of kind of how rocky the negotiations are likely to be going forward? Yeah, and so, also their feelings of exclusion. Poor they don't like babies. to have their feelings hurt. <laughs> Poor little babies, they're excluded from the club. Yeah. No one wants to be left out. Actually, I think I'm really interested in in your guys's take on this um, because, again, you, you know, you have a lot of experience with broad. Um, you know, just a broader history of debt restructurings. And so could not to, not to turn the tables back around on you, but as a journalist, I have to ask, I, I think you guys might be the experts here in terms of the actual renegotiation process. Well, I, I, th I mean, so fair enough. I, I think the, I think the concerns about not really being involved is just, that's such that that's a, a bunch of bullshit, but I do think it, it is interesting and unclear to me what happens if, for instance, there's a sense that Chinese creditors are managing to cut a better deal for themselves, and whether, for instance, the fund is going to 
be in a position where it has to decide how to use its lending into arrears policy. You know, I, all mm-hmm. of these questions are still yeah. are still open, and so. I don't know. There are a lot of people who are declaring victory. This is you know the common framework is is you know demonstrating its utility finally with with places like Zambia and this is going to be a precedent a precedent for Sri Lanka and I'm just sitting here wondering if anything has been accomplished or if we still have just cans being kicked down the road. Yeah, I'm going to go in the nothing has been accomplished. Uh, direction. The reality is, you know, private creditors, just like always, want the maximal recovery possible. And they want that now. And they don't, they don't, I think the thing is, they don't really have a way of controlling China. That's, Mm -hmm. that's the problem. And they were hoping that through initiatives like the common framework, that the West and the IMF would exercise more control over China that they could depend on. And that's not really worked out. Instead of the common framework, we have this uncommon framework that nobody mm-hmm. wants to use. And in particular, one of the things I've been hearing from private sector folks is that the announcements last week uh, or maybe it's two weeks now about the Zambia and Sri Lanka deal, they're just really unclear about how much debt relief will eventually be needed. It's very rough. Mm -hmm. And the private sector was not really part of the process by which the needed debt relief was calculated or by the... They were not part of the discussions on who's going to take extensions of maturity, who's going to take uh, immediate haircuts. And all of this has just been left vague and under the rubric of, oh, we'll just get comparable treatment. And it's just anybody who knows about this will point out two things. One Comparable treatment is a vague term that is often not applied in practice. There are mm-hmm. lots and lots of exceptions. Uh, and two, that, that there's just, there's no enforcement mechanism in any of this. And we, we're facing a completely new landscape, not just in terms of China, but in in terms of the types of Western creditors who are involved in this game. So I, I think uh, that the declarations of optimism in the press, other than, of course, Alphaville, so for example, <laughs> let, let's just uh, throw our friends at the economists under the bus, or I, I think that's who I was reading most recently. It, it, you know, people talking oh, you know, let's just see what happens in Sri Lanka or Zambia. I think Zambia is the one people are talking Mm -hmm. about. Let's just see what happens. And it will be a template for all of the other deals going forward. I'm thinking, how? Why? Like, why don't you think each one of these will be completely different as a function of, you know, what deal is struck on the ground and what the considerations are? There's no template. How are you even getting a template? I don't know, Mark, do you know... um, 
Alex, we, we, we've just babbled in response mm -hmm. to your question oh, that so gave cool. us an opportunity to sound <laughs> intelligent. I think I've, at least I've just uh, babbled on, but oh, maybe opportunity Mark Opportunity wasted. Yes, yes. No, Mark, will so you add cool. some coherence? I won't because I want Alex to have the last word. Um, can, can you, and I'll, you can take this in any direction you want since we've We've kind of uh, steered it all over the place, but I I am interested in whether you have a reaction to kind of where we are in the early stages of these restructurings. Okay, so I I actually thought your views were really helpful. So can I can I turn it around again? I guess my uh, my question is is you know in terms of what is fundamentally different um you know is is this just that you know china's not in the paris club and and there was never like is it reasonable to think of it as just something where you always have to have to negotiate between people and this is just a new negotiation or is there something to you guys that is just like completely different and, you know, is it normally just that the private sector creditors have more power? Like, I want to, I want to make sure that I understand too, like what's, what's totally different here, kind of selfishly, because you guys are the lawyers. So, you know, I, I talk to a lot of money managers who are just like, oh, I'm not even interested in that anymore. And then the distressed managers are like, absolutely not. I'm not talking to a journalist. So, <laughs> so um, let, let me, let me start with the incoherence and then Mark okay. will give the coherence. I think that broadly speaking, this is not that different in that you have different sets of creditors with different interests. We've yeah. always had that, uh, you know, it mostly it was in the past, it was Western, rich Western countries lending bilaterally, uh, you know, in part driven by their geopolitical interests. And mm -hmm. then you had private creditors who could just, you know, to the extent they were syndicated loans by regulated institutions in the 80s, the, the big countries like the US and the UK and the, the European countries, they could pressure, put pressure on the banks to enter into comparable uh, uh, deals to what they agreed to. So now we have the landscape has changed. Many of the Western countries are not lending as much to the developing mm -hmm. world. Uh, China stepped in with a lot of development oriented financing. I mean, when you talk to mm -hmm. people in finance ministries in Africa, which uh, Mark and I have done a little bit of that, they're quite positively inclined to Chinese lending because they say, mm -hmm. you know, Western lenders kind of exited. But China has very different interests because they are lending often on the backs of big projects that they are financing. And so they're going to want to have long-term extensions, mm -hmm. whereas uh, private creditors in the US and Europe are going to have much more short-term interests. And I, I think that there has been some press talk of that. But when one gets more granular, I do think that the that the image that many people have of sovereign lending as 
being, say, say what we had for the last decade or so, particularly mm -hmm. shaped by Argentina, where you had some bilateral lending, but a lot of it was private credit market lending. Yeah. And you had uh, sort of big money investors who would run at the first sign of trouble. And then a lot of the debt goes into the hands of uh, hedge funds. And at least they're the ones who are holding up the deals. I think that has changed. I think that now you both don't have a lot of Western lending so that the the Paris, the power of the Paris Club has diminished greatly. They desperately try to get China to be include to come into their club, but China's like, I don't, you need me more than I need you. So I'm not joining your crappy club. I'm just gonna take advantage of it. But your crappy club, France, is not that nice anymore. And you don't give me good stuff in Paris. I'm not joining your dark and dank club. And so that the dynamics have changed, but they've we haven't paid enough attention to how the Western creditor dynamics have changed. My sense is that institutions like Franklin Templeton mm -hmm. or Fidelity or BlackRock, they have learned from the hedge funds. They are not going to exit at the first sign of trouble. Instead, they're gonna negotiate for good deals. and. That's something that we haven't really studied. And the last bit, and hopefully mm -hmm. Mark will, um, will, will sort of wrap us on this, is that litigation is now coming more and more from the specialist uh, litigation financing firms. And uh, I think the Elliots mm -hmm. and the Aurelius of the world will, will be less and less important in terms of you know the litigation driven drama that we were seeing sorry i went down mark no. i i mean i think what me too says makes a lot of sense and to me the there is a little bit of a wild card associated with this transition from the world where there was kind of a hegemonic official creditor i mean yes we can talk about the paris club and it sounds like a club and we have multiple people but you know f despite the the conflicts among Paris Club members, the world was much more heavily dominated by the US and its interests. And, you know, I think it's an open question what a more conflict-laden world uh, of official creditors is going to do. I, I'm I'm not persuaded it's going to add a, a ton of friction, but it, it, it seems to me reasonable that it might add at least a little bit. And then just maybe to, to wrap up, I think the from my perspective, one of the most important points and one of the most interesting points is the one that Me Too made at the end, which is that the job of a, a the holdout creditor is kind of not really the key job anymore right now you have relatively mainstream creditors and the ground rules and most importantly the capital for playing the hard-nosed game those are now there and, and franklin templeton and and you know, BlackRock, like like everybody has access to the the money and the wherewithal and the legal expertise needed to take a really fairly diehard position at the negotiating table. And so I, I, I just don't think we have a good sense of what that world is gonna look like. We haven't been in it before. It was a, 
a specialist's world with a few um, a few creditors who knew how to play the litigation game. And now you've got mainstream investors with blocking positions and the the resources to to uh, take pretty pretty hard nosed stances. And so I don't know. I, th- I think it's a different okay. world, and and we'll yeah. see what it looks like. Yeah. So I do have one thing to add that I can actually uh, provide some value to this conversation. (laughs) I was just having a conversation about this uh, last week. There is another thing that's different about BlackRock and the sort of institutionalized money managers. And that is that they don't use very exotic structures or a ton of leverage. So the CDS market is kind of a a graveyard. You know, the sovereign CDS is not really a thing anymore. Um, all of these, like it's extremely expensive to short a currency, even if there's a if there's a stressed currency. So these smaller investors may not be able to have as big of an impact also just because of capital requirements and because the way that the markets have evolved too. So that's that's not necessarily um a, that I don't think that means that BlackRock becomes Elliot. I think that means that BlackRock remains BlackRock and just is active in this mm-hmm. different type of environment, uh, which hopefully will mean that, like, you know, we're not seeing. I mean, hopefully, I, I, you know, I won't make a value judgment, but will may mean probably will mean that we won't see BlackRock seizing ships, for example. Right. Right. <laughs> so uh, that that I think I can feel pretty confident about. This, is, this has been great. Thank you so much. But I, I, I think it, it's just going to be different. We can't assume it will be the same, which is for us, that's so exciting. It means yeah. that we'll get to ask you to come back on the podcast and talk more about it. But Alex, thank you so much. It's yeah, been such a again. treat. I really appreciate it. Thanks.